0: Uh, Lord, you're the one that we need to hear from. You're the one that uh, we need uh, to open our eyes, to give us wisdom, uh, to be able to see the person in front of us and respond in a way that reflects uh, your wisdom in your heart. So Lord, help us now uh, to see some things about ourselves that, that may be pretty uncomfortable. Uh, but Jesus, you're a gentle surgeon, so be gentle with us. Uh, we pray in, in your name, Jesus. Amen. So um, they are recording this, uh, and you know these notes. We'll post these notes somewhere in the coming weeks, uh, probably on BroomtreeMedia.com or on Ken's website. But um, and I'll stop at certain points along the way and. Uh, you know, we'll have some conversation. Um, the title of this talk is Our Minds Work the Way We Think They Do. Uh, that to uh, steal the title of a great book on the subject, we need to think again about how we think. And I mentioned this yesterday, but uh, we, this, this really is like the days of Copernicus. You've probably thought about that, of what it was like to live in the days of Copernicus and you know him sort of saying, you know, uh, that thing up there, uh, that doesn't turn around us, we turn around it. I mean, it's completely paradigm shifting if you'd been alive in those days. Well, when it comes to the human brain, we have learned more about the human brain in the last 30 years than the previous 5,000 combined. So get your head around that, you know, I... I Mentioned my son yesterday, he's an abnormally bright kid, uh, his mother's son, and I said, his name's Jack, and I said, Jack, you ought to consider going into brain science, because th- these are like the Wild West days brain of, of learning about the human brain. You know, we've always known our brain had two sides, uh, but we didn't understand how those two sides related to each other, or how the downstairs and the upstairs. We didn't know our brains were related to our nervous systems. And how that affected us. Um, Our brains are related to our bodies. And the more you learn about this stuff, the more eye-popping these modern discoveries become. So as I said yesterday, if we were truly committed to being reasonable, we might begin by acknowledging we're not nearly as reasonable as we thought we were. For example, we are routinely self-deceived ...by a whole host of cognitive biases. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. You've probably heard that phrase, cognitive bias. Uh, I'm going to give you a fuller definition later. Cognitive bias is just a smudge on your lens of reality. It's just a smudge. And once we uh, come to accept that we have those smudges, we can immediately start to uh, trace out some of the implications for how we might relate to people in front of us in these emotionally charged conversations. Um, just imagine with me how differently these conversations might go if we walked in acknowledging, <laughs> you know, I don't know, know this, I'm inclined to be incredibly biased. I'm inclined not to see things clearly, you or myself, And in fact, that's the biggest bias of them all, the I'm not biased bias. (laughs) So just imagine if you showed up with that posture, and just as important if you were able to maintain that posture when your beliefs are challenged. Um, Wouldn't that uh, humility affect the uh, tenor of these conversations? Now, I'm not a neuroscientist. If you want to read more about this for yourself, I can recommend some great books, uh, beginning with Mindsight by Dan Siegel, You Are Not Your Brain by Jeff Schwartz, who became a Christian at our church in Los Angeles, or The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. Nor am I a psychologist. See the aforementioned Think Again by Adam Grant, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, or The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. If you want a more popular treatment, check out Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers or his podcast, Revisionist History. Start with the imaginary crimes of Margit Hamosh. But I am a pastor who is committed to the Bible as a truth-telling book, as a normative lens for understanding reality. And for those of you who might be a little skeptical, you know, this is interesting, but why should I care about all this neuroscience and psychology? I want to convince you today that these so-called breakthroughs uh, turn out to just be a confirmation of ancient biblical wisdom and what some of our best and oldest theologians have long tried to tell us. But as as children of the Enlightenment, we need to recover. Think about this. Is it so surprising for students of the Bible to discover that our perceptions can be affected by things which we cannot see? And of which we are not consciously aware. Spiritual warfare, <laughs> to mention one a prominent example. Uh, how what the Bible calls the flesh and the world affect our desires. And that we are not primarily creatures who think and sometimes desire, but as James K. Smith puts it, we are essentially creatures of desire driven by more than we think. As I said yesterday, we live not out of our heads as we commonly think we do. We live out of what the Bible calls our heart. And we can't be reminded enough that in the Bible, this word heart means so much more than we hear when we hear this word in English. The heart is our motivational headquarters, okay? It's the seat of our desires, it's the meeting place of our thoughts, feelings, and will. It's it's one word in Hebrew, okay? Because the Hebrew prophets and Jesus accepted a reality that our best science is bringing back into our Western mindset that these parts of us shouldn't be parsed out, okay? They shouldn't be parsed out. They are uh, intimately, integrally related. Uh, it's it's not just that our brains uh, it's not just that we have brains and emotions. It's that our emotions are a part of our brain. That affect and intuition are a part of cognition. Or I can say that even more simply, every decision we make is a decision of the heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23. So if we want to approach how minds change, how people change, we have to target the heart. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 Now this is not a seminar on biblical anthropology, how these different parts of us, the Bible talks about, are related, the body, the mind, the will, the soul. I have a simpler goal for us to become a little bit more self-aware so that we might say about ourselves, I'm a person inclined to be incredibly biased, more so than I ever realized, and therefore often overconfident, and therefore often wrong." I have a vision problem. Now we see in a mirror dimly. Okay, this is not a recipe for skepticism, but it is an advertisement for the recovery of humility and compassion with one another. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you a quick definition of cognitive biases and then <clears throat> go over all too briefly handful of the most common so you can point them out in other people. No, not, not, not really. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the psalmist asked, this is Psalm 19, verse 12. I wonder if you've ever noticed this verse. Who can discern his errors? Who can just dis- Hidden faults, he calls them. See, he knows he can- hidden faults. So in Psalm 139, he asked God, quote, to search his heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. So in that spirit, here's a little exercise toward a little more self-awareness that you and I might enjoy a more free, undefended, undefended life. Okay, what is a cognitive bias and do I have them? So if you wear eyeglasses, uh, then you know when they are smudged or when your vision is obstructed in any way and you know it's annoying. Well, cognitive biases work in this way with one very important distinction. You are not aware of the smudges. (laughs) But they are there, nonetheless, affecting our vision. There is something worse than being blind, and that is being blind to our blindness. And that is what makes our cognitive biases so pernicious. We don't see how they affect our perspective. Cognitive biases are glitches in our perception that cause us to reach erroneous conclusions and make unwise decisions. One of the pioneers in this field, I mentioned his name earlier, uh, Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman um, is the only psychologist ever to win the Nobel Prize for economics. And yes, you heard that right. Kahneman and his colleague, Amos Tversky, proved that classical economic theory has been built upon an assumption namely that human beings are rational, and Kahneman Tversky proved this is not true. They showed in a series of how can that be true experiments that we are led by our intuitions more than we realize, that we are continually misled by them. So that if we want to be more accurate in our predictions of how human beings behave, economists need to begin by admitting we are not nearly as rational as we think we are. So there are all these books today about, you know, now a new show on NBC about the, the father of all that is Kahneman, okay? He's the guy who brought this into public uh, consciousness. Uh, we take mental shortcuts, Kahneman calls, Kahneman calls these heuristics, Uh, And sometimes he says it's to our advantage. It allows us to process loads of information quickly and efficiently, especially under threat. It's a good thing that our bodies and part of our brain react before another part of our brain can say, bear. But when there are not literal bears chasing us, these shortcuts in judgment that otherwise help us make thousands of calculations every day, these can distort our judgments in ways we're not aware. So, without further ado, here are some common cognitive biases. And if you're anything like me, once the light comes on in the basement and you start seeing these scurrying around (laughs) underneath your conscious thoughts, you're like, oh dear, Uh, oh no. Um, But we're going to start with maybe the most prevalent smudge, and that is confirmation bias, closely related to desirability bias. Uh, Confirmation bias is you see what you expect to see, you see what you want to see, okay? When it comes to our cognition, we we are not objective viewers. We are motivated reasoners. We like to think of ourselves as objective, surveying the available evidence, following the facts and reason, and then at the end making up our reasonable minds, but this is not how our minds work. Our moral presuppositions, our moral intuitions, what we assume on the front end, these affect how we see more than we realize, the stories we tell ourselves. Rather than seeking after truth, we are more often looking for ways to corroborate what we've already decided. Our reason is confirmatory rather than exploratory, more than we wish to admit. Or as one writer puts it, it's what we use to rationalize our desires, not form them. I mentioned Jonathan Haidt yesterday. He says our reason functions more like a PR firm, gravitating toward evidence that confirms the position to which we've already committed, intending to discount evidence that challenges our perspective. So, for example, we have an intuition about a person or an issue based on our life experience. Based on the first piece of evidence we 've received that 's another bias we 'll talk about then our reason kicks in gear, functioning more like this press secretary than the president who sets the agenda, and we know how our press secretary works. he comes up with supporting evidence to justify the agenda that 's already been chosen, unless you think well, this sounds kind of newfangled, one of the architects of the Protestant Reformation uh, in uh, lead authors of the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer, he summarized this perspective. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. A thousand years before Cranmer, it was Augustine, one of the most important theologians uh, of church history, who stressed that the heart drives us that, and that love is the engine. The heart drives us and that love is the engine. For Augustine, all human beings at our core, we are lovers. To love. And that our desires are just our love and action. Now, knowledge and reason, these were important to Augustine. His vast written works appeal to reason, as does this presentation. But he was always reminding us that these are to be servants of love. That we are given the ability to seek knowledge... So that we might love better. So that our loves might be rightly ordered. So that our desire for God might supersede and control all our other lesser desires. Okay? You say, what does that have to do with confirmation bias? Well, confirmation bias, we see what we want to see. We see what we expect to see. That's just good old-fashioned Augustinian theology. (laughs) Okay? The heart is in charge. And the mind really is in the heart, just like the Bible always told us. Scholars just call this motivated reasoning. These biases don't prevent us from applying our intelligence, but they can, quote, contort our intelligence into a weapon against truth. Yeah. Richard uh, Fenneman, uh, one of the great physicists of the 20th century, who says, you must not be fooled, and the easiest person to fool is yourself. Okay, that's the point of this. I, I wore this uh, uh, vest today to support a college football team, but fans of college football watching instant replay, that is motivated reasoning in action. Each side looks at the same replay and then turns to the other in disbelief. How can you not see that? It's right there. Each side, convinced, they see the evidence confirming what they expect to see, what they want to see. But that is how we go into any review of the evidence. We are motivated reasoners. Let me give a more painful example from my own life. When I was a senior leader, I had very high standards for myself and others one of my great deficiencies as a leader, I tended to focus on what was going wrong, what we could be doing better. No doubt traceable to my own a childhood perfectionist tendencies, trying to win approval by my performance. So when I was a kid, it looked like this. If I got a 98 on a test, rather than being grateful and celebrating that 98, I was that poor kid who was like, what did I miss? I was, what about those two? And one of the most devastating things ever said to me in my life was by my older sister. So one of my best friends and and heroes. I was complaining to her about one of my frustrations with a colleague. And she said to me, I hate to tell you this, little brother, but you will always find what you're looking for. And if you were looking for this person to disappoint you, you will always find the evidence. I still remember where I was standing when she said this to me. Because I had been... accustomed to displacing the blame, pointing the finger. That was eight years ago, and I can tell you, barely a day passes that I don't call to mind her saying, you'll always find what you're looking for. You'll always find what you're looking for. Now, we could spend a whole hour talking about that line. I think that's a great commentary on the verse uh, Kelly brought to our attention yesterday, One of the most profound enigmatic things Jesus ever said, the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body. That your heart affects how you see, and how you see forms your heart. How you see forms your heart. I didn't have a name for it at the time. My sister was introducing me to confirmation bias. Motivated reasoning. Boy, that should put a daily check on our judgments. If we can become more self-aware to admit, boy, I am prone to be a motivated reasoner, discounting contrary evidence, um, drawn toward evidence that just confirms what I already believe, this can make us a little less confident and a little more humble. As Proverbs puts it, this is Proverbs uh, 21.2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So we can't talk about confirmation bias and not talk about two related biases. These are, uh, one is very frustrating and one is very fun. Um, The the frustrating one is the backfire effect. The other is the Dunning-Kruger effect. But let's start with the backfire effect. We don't treat all of our beliefs the same. If I were to ask you, who invented the light bulb? And when we discover 70 years before Edison uh, that someone presented an electrified lamp to the Royal Society, and then when Edison presented his patent to the U.S. Patent Office, it was denied. They said, this has already been discovered. Now when we learn that, we're like, well, that's interesting. You might look it up later and say, yeah, he was right. He, that's, wow, never heard that. But we're not really invested in that unless you're a relative of Thomas Edison. You don't have any dog in that fight. But what about someone who challenges a deeply held conviction? Have you ever had this experience? Uh, presenting what you consider to be incontrovertible evidence that challenged a cherished belief of someone opposing you and that overturned a conclusion in which both of you had so much invested. I mean, even if you had ironclad, indisputable evidence. Research shows that when a strong yet erroneous belief is challenged... The person on the other side might experience some temporary weakening of their conviction, some softening, but this will soon be followed up with a vicious rebounding. And they will reassert their original belief, but this time with even more conviction, even in the face of your evidence. Have you ever had that experience? I mean, apparently our need for self-justification is so strong, we'll double down before we will ever say, I was wrong. If you treat debates like battles where you can't give ground, where you have to win, marshalling your facts to devastate your opponent with your superior logic, well, ask any married couple, how does that ever turn out for you? Because we've all experienced this. When our beliefs are challenged, what do we tend to do? Dig in our heels, deepen our commitments. And the more we have invested in our position, the less we will be persuaded by counter-evidence. We'll tell ourselves, it's the other side that's misinformed and illogical. They are biased. (laughs) They are. And psychologists call this the backfire effect. And I think this goes a long way toward helping us understand the entrenched political divisions of our moment. Why do we keep doing this? But it also helps us understand why our presumed appeal to facts often has the contrary effect of what we were hoping. Or maybe you've heard the old saying, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. It's the backfire effect. Here's another one, and this, is, this one is hilarious. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Have, have, have you heard these statistics? 70% of men think they are above average in looks. <laughs> 92% of Americans think they are above average drivers. Lots of self-deception floating around. We assume that competence and con- competence and confidence move together. That the better we are at something, the more confident we become in our knowledge. But the scientists Dunning and Kruger discovered that competence and confidence can be ironically inversely related. Listen closely. They discovered in a series of tests that people who scored the lowest in logical reasoning grammar, and sense of humor had the most inflated opinions of their skills. Translation, it's when we lack competence, we're most likely to be brimming with confidence. The biblical's version, Bible's version of this is, a fool is wise in his own eyes. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a cognitive bias in which our level of incompetence blinds us to how incompetent we actually are, okay? Or as Dunning puts it, the first rule of the Dunning-Kruger Club is that you don't know you're a member of the Dunning-Kruger Club. Okay, this affects us all in some degree because we all have blind spots. And by definition, we don't see what we don't see. You need a certain competence to be an accurate judge of your competence, You need need some competence to judge your own competence. Okay, For any endeavor, the Dunning-Kruger Club requires listening attentively to voices that challenge your perspective with the consequence that we can more than occasionally admit, you know, I didn't know that. I was wrong. For Dunning, he says, that's the beginning of wisdom, being good at what we don't know. Interestingly, it's not those who know nothing who fall into this trap. It's those who know a little. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Who've only heard one side. We don't know enough to question what we don't know, but we know just enough to feel self-assured in our confident pronouncements, failing to realize that we have climbed to the top of what Adam Grant calls Mount Stupid. Here's the paradox. It's only when you can laugh at yourself for all the times in your life that you have taken selfies at the top of Mount Stupid (laughs) that you will decrease your frequency of visiting that summit. Okay, that's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Give you a few more. The bandwagon effect. Uh, These biases came into the mainstream before the advent of social media But but technology has put some of these on steroids, especially when we're surrounded by a chorus of voices who think like we do. We think we're gathering information. But when those sources are all singing similar tunes, it becomes a recipe for distortion reverberating in our self-chosen echo chambers. We have a deep need for belonging, connection, Here's another place our science and the Bible concur. We have a deep need to belong to a tribe. But our our tribes bind us and they blind us. One of the most terrifying books I read in the last year was The Witches, Salem, 1692. If you want an education in how mobs form, Uh, Check out that book, The Community in Salem Who Put 25 Innocent Men, Women, and Children to Death. This was one of the most literate, highly educated, and religiously devout communities in American history. They were earnest, they were intelligent, and they sincerely believed they were doing God's will and had scrupulously followed a fair process of due diligence. In other words, their consciences were clear. They thought they were doing God's work. How could mass delusion affect so many well-educated, well-intentioned, seemingly godly people? That is the bandwagon effect. See, we have this deep need to resolve a cognitive dissonance. That's when two competing ideas enter our mind and they don't quite go together. But we need to justify our rationalizations. And how do we do that? We do that by pointing to another. That's the bandwagon effect. Gossip plus a crowd plus motivated reasoning plus a scapegoat equals a mob, okay? The witches are put on trial, our consciences are soothed, and the whole story never gets told, except in this case, 400 years later. That's the bandwagon effect. Boy, I'm just touching on a, a, a couple of these because e- we could spend an hour on each of these. But let me give you... A <clears throat> one that when I learned about was the most devastating. This is the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error. And this one, boy, when I learned about this, I was like, oh, no, I do this pretty much every day. The fundamental attribution error refers to an individual's tendency to attribute another's actions to their character while attributing our own behavior to external situations, to factors outside of our control. In other words, you tend to cut yourself a break while holding others 100% accountable for their actions. It's this tendency to blame the individual when they make mistakes, but blame circumstances when we do. Okay, that's the fundamental attribution error. We are charitable with ourselves. We are exacting with others. Instead of what Jonathan Edwards in one of his resolutions advises, to be exacting with ourselves and more charitable towards others. For example, you're in a business meeting, someone comes in late or or forgot the appointment altogether. You may silently make a judgment about their character. But when you were late or when you forgot the appointment, what do you tell yourself? I was just tired, had a lot on my plate, just in a hurry. It's this uh, failure of generosity towards others. And when it becomes uh, pernicious is when we make assumptions about the other person's intentions, which we, we do this all the time, um, believing we are privy to the machinations of their heart. So let me walk through how this happens, and if you're anything like me, this is going to be a little life-changing paradigm for you. So we have our perception of what happened, okay? Our, our memory, our recollection. Here's, here's what I think happened, failing to recognize how biased even our memories are then we tell ourselves a story about what happened, because we're storytelling creatures. We have to have a story. Not realizing this is our story that we made up. And then we have feelings attached to this story, always. These are our feelings. But then we judge others on the basis of our feelings that came from our story, that we based on our assumptions, which leads to a lot of bitterness and anger and spite. And then when it gets really dark, we start judging them through this lens, seeing what we expect to see. You always find what you're looking for, little brother, not recognizing this is the fundamental attribution error. <laughs> I have feelings attached to this story and I'm judging them based on those feelings. Now anytime we catch ourselves making an uncharitable judgment about someone else's character, based on our assumption of their motives, we can remember these two things. I'm not even clear about my own motives. (laughs) Okay, The Bible tells me so. Proverbs 16.2. So I shouldn't assume I can discern the hidden intentions of another's heart. If I'm really bothered about what they did, I should ask them about their intentions. When you did X, I felt Y. Was that your intention? I can replace a critical spirit with a more charitable judgment. I mean, we don't know what's going on with them, what's going on, what their backstory is. And we remember that <clears throat> it can make us more charitable, more merciful, more patient, which is to say... More wise. See James 3. I like how Brene Brown summarizes it. People are hard to hate close up. So move in, hold hands. Strong back, soft front. Boy, it's hard to vilify people when you hear their story. Okay, which brings us to another bias that's plaguing us everywhere today. The binary bias. The binary bias. You know, I'm going to say something that's going to seem self-evident to most of you, but it wasn't for me. I was in my 40s before I uh, understood that emotions are like paints. Uh, more, than, more than one can, be, can exist simultaneously. Our emotions. We can be both joyful and sad. And there's so much liberty in being able to recognize the both and in situations and people, the complexity of stories. Like King David, like Solomon, so too we are mixtures of admirable gifts by the grace of God and shameful inconsistencies through the doubleness of our own hearts. I recently read uh, Robert Carrow's, uh, one of his uh, volumes of the biography of LBJ. LBJ, tremendous... civil rights leader, alongside this vicious streak of self-deception. And I I quoted this line yesterday, the further we are away from a problem, the simpler the solution appears to be. Could also say the less we know someone, the clearer we are tempted to think we see them. But here's the thing, our brains don't like complexity. We like closed loops, and we live in a world that discourages uh, nuance the Bible ought to be our perpetual reminder that when it comes to human beings, there are no good guys and bad guys. There are are no white hats and black hats. This is not a recipe for moral equivalence or for us to give up seeking justice, but it is a reminder that love and justice should always move together, just as God relates to us. The binary bias has the sad effect of limiting potential and curtailing our hope in people and situations. What I mean by that is no one wants to be reduced to your caricature of their worst moment. Guard against the binary bias with a more biblical view of the human heart, alongside the hope that in Christ we are and will be so much more than anyone can presently see. The God of hope causes us to abound in hope, the Bible says, always. So when we enter into our conflicts with one another with that kind of hope, it has the powerful effect of bringing bringing out what Lincoln called our better angels. Okay, you're resisting that binary bias. A couple more. I mentioned the anchoring bias. I'm just going to mention that, that the first piece of information that we hear uh, tends to unduly bias us, as Proverb tells us. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Um, The snap judgment bias. In many ways, this is the one we deal with all the time. The snap judgments we make about other people based on their race, their gender, their age, their weight... Their appearance, so much to say here, so we'll just leave it at becoming aware of how our snap judgments limit our curiosity. And they cut us off from learning from the person in front of us. (coughs) Um, We could spend our whole hour just talking about snap judgment biases. You know, I'm sad we're not going to have time today to talk about something I learned about a few years ago, and that is the negativity bias, a.k.a. cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are our internal mental filters or biases that increase our misery, fuel our anxiety, and make us feel bad about ourselves. These are the little irrational thoughts that influence our moods, such as dwelling on the negative, discounting the positive, not being able to untangle. I am not my thoughts. A part of me is having a thought. I am not my feelings. A part of me is having a feeling. Now that may sound simple to you, but I'm going to tell you that's the whole game. (laughs) That light bulb. The ability to recognize and unblend so you can then engage your thoughts. You can engage your emotions with the presence of Christ in you by His Spirit. Or what the Bible calls life in the Spirit which it promises us to to lead to more joy and peace. See Romans 8. Uh, Last bias I'll mention today. I I touched on it earlier. The objectivity bias, a.k.a. the I'm not biased bias. (laughs) It's important to underline that of all these, the most prevalent bias is the I'm not biased bias, where people believe while others might be subject to bias, that we are more objective and reasonable than they. And I love this. Adam Grant points out that in a cruel irony, the smarter you are, the think you are, the more likely you will be to fall into this trap. The smarter you are, the more you will struggle to update your beliefs. Maybe that makes you think of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew saying, Father, I thank you. I praise you, Father that you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, was your gracious will. Or maybe you're reminded later in Matthew where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you must turn and begin again and become like little children to enter the kingdom. The beginning of wisdom turns out to be a a more entrenched awareness of how foolish and self-righteous and hypocritical and how blind we can tend to be, which, again, the Bible told me so. See Proverbs 3, verse 7. Now, I want to talk about this, uh, have a discussion in in just a moment. Uh, But in conclusion, I said my goal was simple, but it's really not so simple, is it? (laughs) Because you might think, well, now that I'm aware, you know, I'll I'll get the tape and listen to some of these and, yep, uh, fundamental attribution error. You're probably not going to say to yourself, unless you're a nerd like me, that's fundamental attribution error. Um, That's just my cognitive bias kicking in. Um, You're certainly not going to say, that's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, I don't even have enough competence to judge my own incompetence. Um, well, there's the backfire effect. There, there's that again. Um, in you that causes you so much pain as you walk through your day, as you walk through your life. But awareness awareness turns out to be not much protection against our falling sway to these blinders. I mentioned his name earlier. Really the pioneer in this field was Daniel Kahneman. Uh, His book is uh, still in print, Thinking Fast and Slow. And after 400 pages, and this, this is actually a fun book to read because on almost every page he gives all these examples, and you're like, that just can't be true, that we are that unreasonable, irrational. But we are. Um, after 400 pages, where does he leave his reader? Uh, Here's what Kahneman says. What can be done about these biases? How can we improve judgments and decisions, both our own and those of the institutions that we serve and that serve us? The short answer is, little can be achieved without a considerable investment of effort. Like, oh my stars, I read 400 pages just to find out that. A Little can be achieved without considerable effort. And Kahneman himself is not optimistic. He calls us, quote, not really educable. (laughs) And concludes about himself, my intuitive thinking is just as prone to overconfidence as it was before I made a study of these issues. Close quote. Wow, awareness didn't even help the guy whose job it was to make us aware of our awareness. You're like, wow, that is is a downer. (laughs) Or, 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 you could say it is a perpetual invitation to keep in front of us what I said was the key in these difficult conversations yesterday. Humility, humility, humility. Before God before one another, and before ourselves. Evidenced by the great freedom to say, I was wrong, I need help, I didn't know, I'm sorry. I love where uh, Vince left us uh, today with his uh, Genesis 1 uh, and Romans 1 paradigm. The person in front of me, image of God. Romans 1, the person in front of me seeking after truth. And I told Vince, I think we can even add to that Colossians 1, a Colossians 1 paradigm of the person in front of us. You know that great passage, uh, Colossians 1.15? He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus. All things, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were created by Him and for Him. So not only is the person in front of me, image of God, by Christ, for Christ. By Christ, for Christ. Just imagine with me in our difficult relationships around hard conversations, if we could begin with this. Knowing about ourselves, boy, I tend to be incredibly biased with a vision problem. And the person in front of me, by Christ, for Christ, loved by Christ. The gospel is the greatest resource in the universe toward giving us freedom in these conversations. Freedom to receive criticisms and change our minds. Repent, if you will. And we can do so without feeling threatened. We can even become what Brandt Hansen calls in his great book by this title unoffendable, unoffendable, because watch this. Where where is our confidence? Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in our judgments. Where is our confidence? I think this is a word that needs to be redefined in our imaginations and reframed, Confidence. confidence is not in our understanding. Our confidence is in the faithfulness of God. Our confidence is not in our understanding of the goodness of God or in our comprehending of the reliability of God's promises, but our confidence is in an infinitely greater, infinitely better, unshakable foundation, the goodness and reliability of the God who is in Christ. The Christ who is is greater than the Christ of our knowing. He's always greater, always better. And because God is infinitely beyond, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, we can say, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, Even as I have been fully known, I wonder if those verse, if that phrase has just ever floored you. Even as then I shall know, even as I have been fully known, that Jesus is the who sees either of us clearly, me or this person in front of me. And yet, on the cross, He saw us clearly and He stayed. He has justified us, what Romans 4 calls, He has justified the ungodly. That's the gospel. And He is present with us, and He is able to lead us into all truth. John 16, verse 13. With that humble confidence, we can relax from our need to defend ourselves against our own biases. And we can be with and for the person in front of us who was created by Christ for Christ. Whew. Well, I, 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 say, I know that was a mouthful. Uh, I've been talking for 47 minutes. Um, so let's... Let's, you know, use our remaining moments and just sort of have a free for all. Uh, with so this is gonna be fun. Uh, just some questions. Uh, you're like, I didn't understand. Yes, it's Ray, right? Yes. Todd. Todd. I'm sorry, Todd. I have a who does say stuff like, Oh, that's
1: the confirmation bias. I mean says all the time. Oh no. <laughs>
0: Well, my kids are 13, 12, and 10, so I, I, I probably know less than you. <laughs> um, any wise parents in the room want to speak from the files of their own mistakes? Here's what I have learned you shouldn't do. Uh, or anyone got advice for us when our kids are throwing it back in our face, our own confirmation bias? Um, being a jerk never helps, yeah. I mean, I, I, I am thinking of uh, Romans 2. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Like, all right, my, my frontal assault, <laughs> that's going to trigger the backfire effect. And my even pointing out the inconsistencies of their position, that, that is just going to cause them to dig in their heels. Um. I like what someone said yesterday, that patience is an act of courage. Uh, that patience is an act of uh, seeing and forbearing. And I, I see what a fool you're being. You're not going to say that out loud. This is in your head. And, <laughs> and I, I can see it. Oh, man, because I've done it a thousand times more, a thousand times worse Um, and I think we used the phrase yesterday, I'm going to play the long game so that my child will one day say, Dad, why did you not just blow me out? I was a punk. Why did you not just blow me out of the water? Boy, I needed a lot of grace myself, son, so I could extend that to you. And uh, boy, that's going to speak louder. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. So that's what I tell my kid. If he stops and thinks beyond the confidence, I, I don't want to be arrogant. Yeah. So he, he starts to understand, even though when he's throwing it back in my face, Yeah. I gave him two choices to pick which one, you know, which
0: yeah. one Good. Other sort of questions? Uh, any, yes, either one of you guys. Maybe the lady in front. Yes. Beautiful. Now they're they're in their 30s, and they're all close to us, and
1: they more or less seem to think wow. we're amazing, and I don't quite know how that happened. Wow. <laughs> some truth
0: that. Crucifixion of the ego <laughs> leads to life. Yes, in the back. It's beautiful. Yes. Romans 4 17 calls us to call for that which isn't a good word. So if you
1: take what the Bible calls your son and you leave Mm -hmm. him.
0: You said that better than I tried to say about overcoming binary bias through hope and redefining that biblical word hope is a confidence in what will be that can, that can change our disposition today towards the other to summon that uh, into reality. So that's a thank you for that testimony. Uh, Romans uh, 4.18. 17. Yeah in the back just yes the the my, the attorney pat I'm going for yeah okay <laughs> Good. Well, let, let me untangle, because there's a, there's a lot there. Uh, I might make a distinction in how you pose the question between bias and, and preference. Uh, when you say, I'm biased towards Scripture, say, I'm not quite sure. That's how Kahneman is using that word as a heuristic shortcut uh, for your thinking. And, <clears throat> you know, what I said at the end, this, we have to reframe this word confidence, And I said, our confidence is in the God who is, is greater than our understanding of the God who is. He is better. And to hold that uh, confidence in the reliability of his word and say there's always something more better and more beautiful here uh, than than my, my best articulation of it. And how does that play out in this conversation? I think maybe the most important thing I said yesterday was that um, just as we like to say, uh, truth without love really isn't truth. That love uh, that, excuse me, love without truth really isn't love that it must, it must also be said that truth without love really isn't truth. Uh, and I think in our Western Enlightenment perspective, the, I, I'd love to have a conversation about what does the Bible say about knowledge? What is a biblical understanding of knowledge? What is a, um, and uh, that it is, not, uh, it is not simply an assent to facts. Uh, that there is an experiential uh, aspect uh, to biblical knowing. So when we say, I I know this, I'm thinking of James saying, let the one who is among you who thinks he is wise show that wisdom by his conduct. Um, And it relates to, I think it relates to the parenting question, our kids are going to pick up who we are more than what we say. Uh, and that's going to impact them more. So I'm not asking you to sunder your commitments to truth. Uh, I I hope my whole presentation was a demonstration of, man, I'm committed to truthful, uh, reasonable dialogue, Uh, but when it's not done in a posture of felt care for the person in front of me, uh, it doesn't matter how persuasive my arguments are. I don't know if that sits well with you, but we we can about it more. Yes, Ray, in the back. Yeah. It talks about uh, overcoming uh, through the blood. Uh, the word that someone can cite the uh, but the, the the Lamb, the through the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony. Who loved not their own lives even unto death, and that—that that is, this is how Jesus overcame the world through sacrificial, bleeding love. This is the this is the embodied truth that overcame, uh, that is is not compromising. I am the truth.
1: Uh, Been a very humbling process the Lord has been taking you through the last couple of years, and I will just tell you it's not pleasant. (laughs) It's not pleasant at all. uh, But I read a book called Educated, and I don't know if you read it, but she made a point in the book when she was studying that she read an author that said, Do you really even know what you believe? Because for the last however many years, we've been told what to believe. We have in America, we have.
0: Well, that is, thank you for your courage in saying that in front of the room. That is a one of my heroes, and I'm not going to say his name, but if I said his name, many of you in this room would know it. He's a retired pastor in his 70s uh, who said to me, I, Rankin, I realize that most of my professional career, which is, was spent in the name of trying to help people know Christ and see Christ, I can say now in my 70s that... I never really cared for people. I I wanted I wanted them to think well of me. And I wasn't aware I if you had told me that in my 50s I would have been very offended. But now in my 70s I can see so much of what I did was about me. And man, that story gave me such freedom to say I don't know if I know what it means to love the person in front of me and him putting his arm around me and saying, that's right, you may not know what it means. I know it looks like the blood of the testimony. So never too late to learn that. Uh, In the back, yes, sir. Yes. Google is coloring the water next Yes, yeah. They are making you feel a certain way. Yeah. The political party is inspired. The whole world is looking for Well, we might have time. Yes, Keith in the back. Well, a lot. This is uh, this is a lot, and I appreciate the courageous uh, uh, sister in Christ saying, "Man, this is hard. This is man, this is painful, um, and it is painful when you realize, man, some of my worst mistakes were made with some of my best intention." Well, uh, let me. Pre- or the goal here is is not. Uh, just greater self-awareness, but as, as someone said, the, the goal here is to learn how to love. Uh, that you tell us uh, that this is what's most important, uh, to love you, um, heart, soul, strength, and mind, all of us. And out of that love, to learn how to love another, even as you have first loved us. Lord, give us the courage to admit we may not know what that means, but also give us the courage in the gospel that we are safe, we are secure, we are, we are redeemed, we are covered, we are justified, so that from this secure, confident position, we can move forward learning how to love as we have first been loved and so embody the truth of who you are, Jesus. We pray in your name, amen.